Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. I am so excited about today's guest, I can't even tell you. My guest is Kwame Alexander. Kwame is a poet, educator, and award-winning author of more than 30 books for children and adults. His newest book, Light for the World to See, A Thousand Words on Race and Hope, is now available. When I was a child, I wanted to be a fireman and a doctor and a king. The first two didn't work out too well. In 2020, America was on fire. Thousands of protesters marched on Washington last week to protest systemic racism and police brutality. The demonstration came 57 years after Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. One morning we woke up and I was ready. I had my clothes on and my backpack and he says, we're not going to school today. And I say, yes. And he says, because we're going to march over the Brooklyn Bridge. And I say, "Uh uh-uh. I'm here to teach you about poetry. Are you ready for this? It is about to go down. So look, I believe that words can change the world. I've always believed that. I know it in my gut. It is a metaphorical thing. It is an esoteric thing. And it's also a literal thing. The thing is, I write a bunch of books for kids. I travel the world speaking to kids, or at least I did when the world was open. But how do I actually know it's working? Am I touching the lives? Am I actually inspiring, engaging, entertaining, and empowering young people? You hope and you write for that, but is it actually happening? And then like, one day last week, I get a lot of fan mail from from kids. And that's interesting to say as a writer to get fan mail. But hey, it is what it is. So I, I get fan mail from kids around the world. And this kid wrote me, this fourth grader, he wrote me this. Dear Kwame Alexander, most books I see at the library just look normal. But when I saw your book, Rebound, it really caught my eye. When I started reading it, it felt like Charlie was my friend and I got to know a lot about him. He was sad that his dad died and now he doesn't want to play basketball anymore. Later that night, I was just watching TV and I wasn't getting any exercise whatsoever or getting up and going outside. The next day, I read the part where he was going to his grandma and grandpa's for the summer that really changed what I thought about him. I began wondering many questions. Is he going to be fine? Is he going to change? I began reading and I saw that he wasn't sitting around doing nothing but he was working because his grandpa was pushing him. I thought about when I just sat around all day doing nothing, not going outside, absolutely nothing. I started getting outside, moving around and taking my dog on walks. I was even playing some sports with my dad and friends and I started seeing how it not only changed Charlie, the main character in your novel, but it was changing me as well. But I was still wondering why his grandpa was pushing him so hard. I quickly found out that his grandparents were still depressed about his dad's death. And it seemed like he would be depressed, too. But when Charlie and his cousin Roxy went to the Boys and Girls Club, Charlie was called up to play. I was so worried for Charlie when he was called up. But he did amazing. He realized that he still loved basketball and he worked hard to get better and better. After reading that, it helped to change my focus on getting exercise 
rather than playing video games all day. So me and my friends played basketball, football a lot, and we just had a blast, just like Charlie. Soon, I began realizing that the book was nearly over, so I stopped reading. And I thought about how this book changed my life from the day I started reading and how I have matured and grown from it. And it was like looking at a new me, like what his grandfather said, that when life makes you miss, you got to rebound and keep shooting. And that's how he rebounded from his dad's death. I was, you know, just even enjoying the fresh air now, playing with my friends and having fun. But like all stories, there has to be an ending. As your book came to an end, I realized how I've gotten better and stronger and, and healthier. And thanks to this book, it helped me change my perspective on life. And I remembered what I was before this book. And then after reading the book, and I saw major growth and improvement. Like fairy tales, they always have a happy ending. But this book not only had a happy ending for Charlie, it had a happy ending for me too. And that's a fourth grader. Sorry, not sorry. I can't. Oh, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And by the way, the only fan letter I've ever sent was to Dave Eggers. Yes. After I after I read Heartbreaking Work of a Staggering Genius. And it's literally the only fan letter I've ever sent to anyone in my life. So yeah, that's really special. It really Mommy. is. Did you cry when you first opened that? I did. I yeah. did. I get a lot of letters and and they touch me, you know, that kids take the time to to write to a writer. You yeah. know? And it means a lot because it just reminds me to keep doing the work that I do. That's why I do it. Those kind of letters are the real awards in this work. Oh, it's, it's beautiful. Well, I read your new book, which is called For the World to See. And it was just a gut punch, mm. basically, of, of, of pain and, and power. But also, I think, maybe hope. Tell us about the book and the three poems that it contains. Yeah, I think, you know, the way you sort of categorize it is apropos, pain to power. I knew that I wanted to write a book that dealt with the tragedy um, of this wound that we suffer here in America in general and in Black America in particular. This wound that started when the first Africans were kidnapped and, and unloaded off of ships in Charleston and Alexandria, Virginia. This wound that continued through 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 lynching and Jim Crow and this, this wound that continues through police brutality. I wanted to tackle that because I felt like in order for us to be better, to get better, to, to envision a better future, we have to acknowledge the terrible past. The uprisings against police brutality across U.S. cities came after police officers killed 46-year-old George Floyd. But the anger you see is also in response to a history of police violence. A history that has left Black people more scared about being a victim of police violence than being a victim of violent crime. We have to acknowledge where we've been and what we've done and what has happened. And let's get through that. So I wanted to tackle that. I've always believed that through a poem, which is this sort of concise, rhythmic arrangement of the most beautiful and powerful words that you can grasp so much from it. You can feel something if it's done right. So I thought, well, if I can write a piece that's going to make people feel something, then perhaps that will lead to them thinking something and that will lead to them acting in a different way. 
And so I knew I wanted to start with this sort of tragedy. But I knew, like you said, you talked about hope. By the end of this book, I wanted the reader to feel a certain kind of hope because that's where I, I sort of traffic in hope. I am an ultimate optimist. I believe in, in, in yes, in that we're going to uh, have an America that's going to be equitable and, and humane. And so, so I needed to go from the tragedy to the triumph. I needed to go from the woe to the wonder. And these three poems, you know, from American bullet points all the way to the undefeated, I felt like would accomplish that. Well, it, it truly is a journey. And one of the things that strikes me about the book is really how visual it is. And the art is fairly abstract. I would say even almost design-oriented but it still yeah. anchors the poetry in in a very real world. For example, on one page you write, we can't save our sons. And the words are written in, in gray and black bars that to me were clearly evocative of a jail cell. Yep. And I wonder how, as a poet, the artwork and the visuals fits into the writing for you. Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for acknowledging the, the art, the graphic design. It was done by a South African graphic designer and artist named Sindiso. And uh and so that so so I want to shout him out. But but I think when when we write, when I write, I am, you know, thinking uh I'm sort of it's mind pictures, as Langston Hughes would have said. I am I'm visualizing, you know, sort of uh, the knee on the neck of a black man in Minneapolis. I am visualizing a mother crying over a grave, a tombstone of her son. I am envisioning my daughter, my 12-year-old kid, walking to school and me just, you know, her not understanding the pain of, or the anxiety or, or what I'm dealing with every morning just to make sure that she texts me to let me know she made it. I am visualizing all these things. And the goal of the poet is to be able to make these pictures, to make these realities jump off the page, to be able to pull you in as the reader and make you feel something, to engage you, to agitate you, to help you understand what I'm trying to convey. The goal of the poet is to make my personal your business. And the best way to do that is to paint a picture. I love that, to make yeah. my personal your business. Yeah. I'm wondering if you think that you view the visual aspect of this book for adults differently than other writers because you have written so much for children. Well, you know, here's the thing. I believe, at least my goal, I never thought of myself as writing for children. And, you know, I get that that's what it is, but I set out to write about children for all of us. And so if you pick up, one of my books, like Crossover or Rebound, which this fourth grader talked about in his letter, I would expect, my hope would be that a 10-year-old 
and a 40-year-old would both be able to to respond to this book. Mm. It, it would resonate across generations. That's how I try to write. Even this book that we're talking about now, Light for the World to See, yeah, I think a, a fourth or a fifth grader could read it. Certainly, it's an adult trade book, but it's certainly, I think, a book that will resonate with kids because, again, that's the beauty of poetry. You can talk about these weighty, heavy things, and they can be distilled down into these very few words that that we can all relate to, that are accessible, that are cool, that are interesting. And I think that's why I'm so attracted to poetry, because it can do that. Who's your favorite poet? Ooh, I got a couple. I mean, I mean, whether it's, you know, it's the uh the 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 authenticity and the rawness and the clever wit of a Nikki Giovanni mm-hmm. or it's tonight I write the saddest lines or I want to do with you what spring does to the cherry trees. Pablo Neruda, mm-hmm. you know, the love poems in Neruda, uh, whether it's E.E. Uh, e. Cummings, I carry your heart in my heart, whether it's Dr. Seuss, Fox, Sox, Knox, Box, Fox and Sox, Sox and Box. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, it's, it varies. It varies. One of the poets I'm reading now is a poet who just won the Pulitzer Prize. His name is Jericho Brown. A poem has structure, but it also has surprise. A poem has pattern, but it also has variation. I'm just I'm in I'm in love with poetry. I'm in love with poetry. Well, it's really a special a special thing. Something I think that almost every child remembers writing their first poem. Right. And what that, you know, meant to their family when they brought that home from school. So it's something that you can grow with and find, you know, the different places inside your being that that it can live in. In the introduction to your book, you quote Audrey Lord in saying, poetry lays the foundations for a future of change a bridge across our fears of what has never been before, which I love so much. Uh, where does the bridge of your poetry lead? I think a couple places. If we're talking about young people, I believe that poetry can be a bridge to allow them to begin to appreciate um, the, the, the power of literature, in particular, long-form literature. So if you think of a poem with a few lines on the page and all that white space. And so the white space, number one, is not intimidating. It's not intimidating to that reader who may be um, uh, uh, labeled reluctant because there's so few words. The white space is also there for the spiritual journey. It's not just the words that are on the page. It's the words that aren't on the page. And so I think it can be a bridge. Once a kid is able to get through a poem, they're able to build confidence. You know, I completed it. I got through it. I understand it. And now I can move on to something else. So I think it could be a bridge to an appreciation of language and literature. I also think it can be a bridge to help people become more human. I'm smiling so big right now because I'm dyslexic. And when I was little, the way my mom and my mom, who is also dyslexic, helped me to read was with Shel Silverstein. Mm. And 
there was something about poetry that I could read flawlessly. But when I tried to read any sort of text in a in a textbook or um, anything that didn't have that white space, all the words got got jumbled together. And poetry, reading poetry at a young age really gave me the confidence to read other things. Right. But what you're saying is so interesting also because if you think about it from an actor's perspective, when you're looking at a script, which I also never had a problem reading, there is so much white space. Mm. And for an actor, that white space is where we create the characters. Yeah. It literally is where if I'm preparing for a role and I have a script, it is in the white space that I will dream up her backstory or what happens after the movie or where this person goes. So that white space has always been so important to my evolution as an artist and it gave me confidence. When I think about, you know, you mentioned dyslexia. One of the greatest human beings, activists, you know, a, a cultural icon for us, and the heavyweight champion of the world three straight times, uh, Muhammad Ali, was dyslexic. But he wasn't diagnosed because they didn't have a diagnosis for it back then. So right. he, was, he was labeled dumb. And so when you look at what devices or what tools he had at his disposal that he used, in order to overcome that, and because he was actually really smart, it had a lot to do with the rhythm and the rhyme. And we heard a lot of that poeticness. I'm better now than I was when you saw that 22-year-old undeveloped kid running from Sunday Listen. I'm experienced now, professional. Jaw's been broke, been lost, knocked down a couple of times. I'm bad, been chopping trees. I done something new for this fight. I done wrestled with an alligator. That's right. I have wrestled with an alligator. I don't tussle with a whale. I don't handcuff lightning, throw thunder in jail. That's bad. Only last week, I murdered a rock, injured a stone, hospitalized a brick. I'm so mean, I make medicine sick. So I just, I wrote a book about Muhammad Ali, which I wrote with a friend of mine named James Patterson. You may have heard of him. And this is... <laughs> And this is one of the pieces from the book that I think really showcases sort of, you know, Cassius Clay, as he was called then, as he was named then, um, identifying with poetry as a way to be able to use language. The name's Cassius Clay and I'm gearing to fight. My next foe may bark, but I'm sure gonna bite. If he comes in grinning like he's having fun, I'll wipe that smile off and beat him in one. If he tries to stick me like Elmer's glue, I'll turn up the heat and sting him in two. Tell all your friends best bet on me because there ain't no way he's lasting for three. So, you know, the rhyme and the rhythm, it helps us, again, building that confidence. Do you mind if I ask you a political question? Sure. Well, we're about to see the end of the Donald Trump era. Yeah. But even knowing what we know about him... More than 70 million Americans voted for his reelection. I'm just curious from an artist's perspective, where do you think we go from here? And do you think art will play a part in reaching across the aisle to try to, to mend some of the heartache that we're feeling right now in this country? 
great American writer, Toni Morrison said, this is precisely the time when artists go to work. There's no time for despair, no place for self-pity, no need for silence, no room for fear. We speak, we write, we do language, because that's how civilization heals. So my goal continues to be the same thing that it was last year and five years before and 10 years before that is to change the world one word at a time. And my focus is young people. My focus is to create a literature, a body of work that's going to help young people imagine a better world so that they don't find themselves in this sort of situation where we have such a divisiveness in our country. So I am, you know, everybody has roles. Our, you know, the first black woman, the first woman of color, vice president Kamala Harris has a role in the tradition of a Shirley Chisholm. The athletes, they have a role. You have a role. We all have voices. My voice is on the page in particular for young people to help them imagine a better world. I posit that, you know, police officers like Hankerson or, or, or Derek Chauvin, who were responsible for the deaths of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, had they been exposed to, you know, uh, the Sorry Not Sorry podcast or the like when they were younger? Or had they been exposed to a, a book of poems by Nikki Giovanni or Langston Hughes? Or had they been exposed to, to, to ch a children's literature that reflects the kind of world we actually live in? I posit their imaginations would have enhanced, would have been increased, would have been more expansive so that they, they wouldn't have made the choices that they make. So I want to focus on the children. That's my goal over these, you know, next 30 days and next 30 years. Well, that is a very beautiful goal and one that is surely going to lead to changing one heart at a time. You know, my thought is, is that the last four years is They've been tumultuous. But as you write, the problems of racial justice in our nation did not start in 2016. And I think it's so important that we continue to say those words until people believe it, because I know that there are a lot of people who saw 2016 as that catalyst. And do you ever think about, this is completely off topic, but do you mm -hmm. ever think about like where we would be in this discussion without the technology of being able to video on our cell phones? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, a, <laughs> I think America has reached a critical boiling point just in these last six months, you know, and you gotta, you gotta, you gotta think that the technology has sped things up, you know, exponentially. Well, people can't ignore that it's a problem anymore. You can't, they can't ignore it. They can't ignore it when they see it, when they see it with their eyes and digest it on their own time. They can't ignore it. So, yeah, I just I, I often think about not only where we would be if we didn't if we weren't able to videotape and, and see this this horror. Oh, it's not even tape anymore. This is how yeah. dated I sound. <laughs> but also like what was happening before that? What was happening before we could we could document everything on, on our cell phones. It's horrifying to think about. It's the same thing. We've been going through this for a while. When I think about my childhood growing up, um, I think we both grew up in, in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. um, I grew up in Crown Heights. And Bensonhurst. Yeah. So when I think about, you know, this, 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 this black man, Arthur Miller, being killed in 1978, 
And as a 10-year-old, me going to march over the Brooklyn Bridge, you know, my father forcing me to march to protest the police killing of this, of this guy, this Black man, and me being so afraid to do it because I feared that the bridge would be, the Brooklyn Bridge would be opened up and we would all die. We'd all fall in and die. And of course, the, bri- the Brooklyn Bridge ain't going to be open. It can't be open. But that's what my 10-year-old self thought. And Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing, right? Arthur Miller um, is referenced in the dedications. And eerily, in uh, Radio Rahim's killing, also echoes that of Arthur Miller. Um, Forty years ago, when he was killed, um, you know, all the major media outlets in New York covered the fact of his killing, um, as well as mobilization um, against this kind of police violence. Um, and yet, 40 years later, it's not necessarily a story that we hear a lot about, that we come back to. We, we get across the bridge and there are police officers in riot gear on horses and, and, and people are, are chanting, you know, we're chanting, we're fired up, we can't take no more. We're fired up, we can't take no more. And, and, and that, was, that was 1978. And this, again, this, this tragedy, this wound is... It's not new. And there's a sense of urgency that we are tired and we're fired up and we can't take anymore. And it's got to stop. And for the first time in our history, and maybe this is what you're alluding to in that the technology is aiding, has aided this and sped it up, but that you don't just have Black people marching over the bridge, metaphorically. Now. That's right. You've got every, you've got Americans marching over the bridge. Because we can't turn a blind eye. We can't. And and it's powerful. But I do feel like there is a portion of white people in this country where this has come as a surprise, where this is like, what? Of course there's, I mean, this this idea of systemic racism and people still arguing that they don't believe it exists is, I think, a pretty big portion of this country. And maybe we've chipped away at that a little bit because of of everything being so uh, easily documented, but people can't turn a blind eye anymore. And because of that, I think there are problems and immediate problems that we need to fix in order to start making America more just. And I'm wondering what you think those immediate problems are. Wow. What those immediate problems are? See, I try to live my life and try to go about by my business, Alyssa, dealing in solutions. I am not so focused on what's wrong in the sense that I spend a great deal of time complaining, being upset, being frustrated. So I'll give you an example. What are some of those problems? Well, let's just, you know, I'm, I'm an author. I've written 35 books. I'm in the publishing industry. so. Um, there is serious inequity in the publishing industry when you look at the advances that are paid towards black authors versus uh, white authors. There are very, just at my company, um, the company where I'm published, Houghton Mifflin, you can probably count the number of black people who work in editorial on one hand. And that is not to single out Houghton Mifflin, it's just to say it exists like that across the industry. So, so those are things that people rightly, justifiably so are pissed off about. 
and and I get it, and I'm upset too. But my solution is, well, I'm going to start an imprint. So I started an imprint three years ago at Houghton Mifflin called Versify. And within the first two years, we hired a black editor and a black assistant. And we we publish black authors, we publish Latinx authors, we publish, we publish anybody whose book is good and meaningful and will help kids imagine a better world. But because my perspective is broad because my imagination is expansive. I not only see white writers per se, I see writers that need an opportunity just like me, just like I needed an opportunity when I started in this business. So the books that we publish at Versify reflect the kind of world we claim we want for our kids. So, so when you ask what are some of those problems, that's a whole nother podcast. There's a plethora of problems. I tend, again, to focus on solutions. What am I going to do today when I wake up? How am I going to impact this world? How am I I going to inspire and empower young people? What am I going to do? And so that's a daily conversation I have with myself. And certainly being a part of this podcast was something that I was like, sorry, not sorry. (laughs) See what I did there? This was... This was something I was looking forward to because I feel like it it's on the continuum of trying to make change, of raising your voice, lifting your voice for the things that matter. So let me ask you this. So much of coming up with solutions is about looking at the world creatively and problem solving. Right. And we are so focused now. We are so driven to focus on STEM education. Mm-hmm. Are we losing something as we teach children in regards to being able to find solutions or creatively think outside the box to come up with those solutions? Uh, I think. We, STEM is necessary and important and crucial and significant, and the arts are as well. And we tend to forget how important the arts are in terms of critical thinking and create and nurturing and developing young people who who have a way of seeing the world that inspires. I mean, when I think about it, it's the poets and the artists who ask the questions, who throw the ideas out there that 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 challenge us. And it's the scientists and the mathematicians who figure it out. I think we're we're all connected up. It's all related. And there's a there's a lot of innovation that's necessary in order to help make this world a better place. And certainly if artists are anything, they are innovators when they're doing their job right. Absolutely, we got to pay more attention. When I hear of a library that's closing or, or a school that has budget cuts and the first thing they cut is the librarian and now the librarian, the library is closed two days a week or, or when I hear about the theater program that's cut or, you know, oh, I just cringe. 
Without the local library in my neighborhood, I don't think I would have grown up to be a writer or a teacher. Books connected me to a world far beyond my neighborhood. It took me to China, it took me to Paris, it took me all over the world. And I was able to expand my world through my local library. Without my local library, I would not be where I am today. The arts are, you know, what allow us to not only be able to interpret, interpret and express our place in this world, but ultimately the arts allow us to become more human. And none of the answers are going to matter if we don't have a a high level of humanity. We don't have a, a level of appreciation for all of us. And that's, that, that's, that's the thing there. Well, I mean, even on a federal level, one of the first things they always try to cut is the National Endowment of the Arts, yep. Yep. which is, you know, terrifying to think that we might live in a world where that means less than our defense program. So there's so many things to love about you, but one of my favorite things that I learned about you is that you funded and founded a program called Book in a Day. Tell everybody about that. Wow, Book in a Day. That was that was a program that uh, a friend of mine in Detroit, Michigan, her name's Dana Davidson. She was an AP English teacher at Cas Tech. And she knew I was a writer and a publisher. And this was like, 15 years ago. And she called me and she was like, I want you to come to my school and teach my kids how to publish. Her seniors, her AP seniors had written poems, essays, articles over the course of the year. And she wanted to reward them with a book. And I said, okay, fine. Bring me out to your school. I'll do a one week residency. Pay me a thousand dollars or something. And I can teach your kids all about the publishing process and you all can go about doing the work. And she said, no, I don't have a week and I don't have a thousand dollars. In fact, I have no money and I only have one day. It's like, what? That's not possible. (laughs) Now, of course, my philosophy in life is saying yes. I'm a huge say yes person. I believe in walking through doors, figuring out what's on the other side when you get there and making it work. You too? Yeah, me too. Me too. I I have a very hard time saying no. (laughs) Right. You right? Yes. So I said, yes, fine. You don't have the money. You only have a day. Get all the students to donate $11. She had 150 kids over five periods. They each brought in $11. I flew to Detroit, Michigan. I arrived at her school about 7.40 a.m. She dropped a 200-page manuscript down, all the kids' writings on on the table for me. Her first class came in. I had them come up with a title for the book. Second class came in. I had them proofread and copy edit the entire manuscript. It was like an assembly line. The third group came in. I had them design a book cover. Fourth group came in. It's about 1.30 now. We finished lunch. I had them write the introduction, uh, the foreword, the table of contents, the back matter. By three o'clock that day, we had a file, a PDF of the entire book designed. We sent it off to a printer. Within, within three weeks, their books came back. And essentially, I had helped them publish a book in a day. And I said, this is kind of interesting because I didn't really do any work. I coached them through it. I taught them about it and they did it. It was training. It was on the job training. So I said, why not offer this to more kids? So over the next eight years, we did the program in 76 schools 
around the United States, Canada, and the Caribbean. I'm here today to hopefully get you all involved in this program. We're going to choose 30 students from Crossing to be a part of it. We're going to write a poem, a really good poem. We're going to publish a book of your poem that's going to be on the shelves in Barnes & Noble. The real fun part was when Chris Colderly, a third grade teacher in Canada, called and said, can you do it with my elementary school students? And I had thought, that's impossible. But yes. And they did it. They did it. So, yeah, that's the book of the day. My kids' school starts in kindergarten, and they do publishing parties. And they do two a year. And they write books. And obviously, when they're in kindergarten, when they can't actually write or or read, they tell the teacher what they want to write about, and they work together. And then the process is the same thing. They edit. They they you know check the spelling on everything. Yep. They hand. And my my son is in third grade, and obviously has become more detailed. And they they have to share their story with all the parents. Uh, they we call it a publishing party, and all the parents. Obviously, it's not happening now. It happens over Zoom. But we would go to the school. And these kids who took so much pride in what they write get up in front of a microphone, which helps, you know, with public speaking, and they tell their story. And then the teachers laminate everything. And it's such a lovely thing, but it's given my kids not only confidence to to speak in public, but also confidence in, in their reading and, and writing skills. It's it's really lovely. You also founded the Leap for Ghana program. Will you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. And just to piggyback on what you said, they found their voice. You right. know, they find their voice. And you once you find your voice and you're you're giving them permission to raise it and lift it, Mm-hmm. It's on and popping. Then it's on and popping. Leap for Ghana. So my dear friend uh, Juanita Britton, she gave me my first job out of college, and she's a businesswoman who owns quite a few stores in Reagan National in Washington Dulles Airport. And she has some ties to Ghana, West Africa. So she she called me one day and said she was going to become the queen mother of a village. In, East, in the eastern region of Ghana, and would I come for the ceremony, for the coronation? And I'm like, ooh, the crown. It's on and popping, <laughs> you know? And so my first time in Africa, 2012, I'm in Ghana. I, um, I've got an 11-hour flight. I wear some, some white linen pants because I want to look fly for this coronation. Uh, I get off the plane. It's like 120 degrees sweating i get in the taxi it's like this little rickety car three hours in rain and we we get to the to the village and i step out of the taxi into a vat of mud and and now my with your white linen yes it's all brown and and my sandals i got sandals on because i had my feet my pedicure i'm trying to look fly (laughs) and i'm all muddied up anyway i the coronation is off the charts it's just so inspiring and 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 I, I pass out because I'm jet lag. And the next morning, I leave the hotel and come back to the village. And she says, Kwame, I want you to, to read to the kids, 200 kids. And it's a classroom that has no, no walls, no ceiling. It's just an open air sort of space. 200 kids. And my first children's book had been published. It was, it's called Acoustic Rooster and His Barnyard Band. And it's about a rooster that stars a jazz band with Duck Ellington and Mules Davis. 
Love it. Yeah. And so I read to the kids and they're into it. And while I'm reading it, Alyssa, a rooster walks up beside me. Come on. <laughs> yes. Yes. And so <laughs> we have such a good time. So I asked the teachers, bring me another book and I'll read some more. And she, she brings me a book. She said, this is the only book we have in the school. And it's a computer technology textbook. And, and there are no computers. So the way they teach computer technology is by drawing a laptop on the blackboard. Oh. So I'm like, okay, ding, ding, ding. I'm going to bring books into this village. So over the next few years, I start bringing books, getting donations. We got about 5,000 books. So now I'm like, well, we got books and we got them all in this little closet. I want to build a library. So I start calling my friends, go fund me, start getting uh, donations. So we've raised quite a bit of money and, and we're building a library. And so over the next couple of years, the library is being built. So now it's about five years into my journey to Ghana and the library is about to open. I bring 22 people with me from America, librarians and educators for the ribbon cutting. Oh. Um, we get to the, I, I get, we get to Ghana, everyone's in the hotel. I go to the village to check on the library and there's no roof and it's not painted and it's about 40% complete. Now, mind you, the next day is supposed to be the ribbon cutting for the library right. and it's not done. And so I'm freaking out. So finally, I just, you know, I tell everyone this is phase one of the library. So we're going to have a ribbon cutting for phase one. So the columns are done. They paint the columns. We have a great ribbon cutting. After it's over, everyone's back on the bus to head back to the hotel. I'm meeting with the elders in the village and they know me. I'm like family now because this is my fifth year going. I'm like, what's up? And I, I say this respectfully. Why, why, was, why was the library not complete? Oh, do not worry, Kwame. It will be okay. No, I'm worried. Why is it not done? We've been sending money over. Oh, Kwame, it is okay. No. And, and so I just get frustrated and I say, did you not want the library? And their response just bowls me over. The response is, eh, we could have used a health clinic. Mm. And of course, in my mind, it hit, it, I, it, it clicks. I never asked them what they wanted. Mm. I came over with my Western intentions and tried to give them what I thought they needed. Mm. And they needed a health clinic to deal with things like malaria, which is a killer. So uh, I'm proud to say that a year later, we opened, and we named it after my mother, we opened the Barbara E. Alexander Library and Health Clinic. So that's what an amazing, what an amazing story. Yeah, yeah. And lesson. Big lesson. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Big lesson. Yeah. Because as I'm listening, I'm like, this is the greatest thing ever. This work takes so much humility. Yes, it does. And, and listening. And listening, which is, I think, part of humility. Mm. I think many of my listeners probably know you through your work as the poet in residence for NPR's Morning Edition. And in that role, you and I love this so much. You regularly call on listeners to write poems, and then you take pieces of those poems to create something entirely new. Yeah. And it's really powerful. Another black body shot. White hot hate left its stain on a blackened Georgia road. My country, tis of thee. We must raise the skeletons buried deep in our past. 1880, 1890, 1920, 1990. 2020. Give it time, white fragility says. What makes community-created art so incredibly powerful? 
Well, I think the biggest thing is it reminds us that we are all more alike than we are different. It connects us. The words actually bring us together. Mm. That's the beauty of these poems. It's, it's, you, you have, you know, people from Wisconsin and New Mexico and Jacksonville and, and Maine and just Detroit and all over. And, and somehow we are able to piece together like a puzzle these different lines and thoughts and feelings and ideas and ideals. So it sounds like one voice. And so it sounds like one United States of America. Oh, I love it so much. And that's what it is. That's exactly what I, I am always in awe because, you know, we get thousands and thousands of entries. And when I'm going through these pieces, it is like a puzzle. And I'm like, this is never going to work. Like, that's I was like, this is not going to work. <laughs> and so, it, of course, it doesn't surprise me because I expect it. I know it's going to work. I expect it to work. But I'm always, my mind is blown when it works because that's what this country means. That's what this country can mean. It can work. It can work. We just got to be willing to put in the work. I'm curious, do you have one overarching message that you would tell to all children and adults in America? Well, I'll I'll answer this like this. I'll answer that with a poem. So your choice, a really short poem or a medium poem? What do you want? Uh, Medium. Oh, I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, unless you want to do a short. No, no, it's all good. We're going to give this to you live. This is for the unforgettable, the swift and sweet ones who hurled history and opened a world of possible, the ones who survived America by any means necessary, and the ones who didn't. This is for the undeniable, the ones who scored with chains on one hand and faith in the other. This is for the unflappable, the sophisticated ones who box adversity and tackle vision, who shine their light for the world to see and don't stop till the break of dawn. This is for the unafraid, the audacious ones who carry the red, white, and weary blues on the battlefield to save an imperfect union, the righteous marching ones who sang, we shall not be moved because Black lives matter. This is for the unspeakable. This is for the unspeakable. This is for the unspeakable. This is for the unlimited, unstoppable ones, the dreamers and doers who swim across the big sea of our imagination and show us the majestic shores of the promised land. This is for the unbelievable, the we real cool ones. This is for the unbending, the black as the night is beautiful ones. This is for the underdogs and the uncertain, the unspoken, but no longer untitled. This is for the undefeated. This is for the undefeated. This is for you and you and you. This is for us. Kami Alexander, what a blessing and gift you are to the world. Thank you. I'm so honored that you did the podcast. They asked me to read a poem, y'all, for librarians and educators and teachers to show y'all some love, to really encourage y'all to keep doing this this good work that we're doing, to keep up the good fight, to to, to educate kids and entertain them, like intelligent entertainment. So I'm going to read a love poem. All right, this poem is called Real World. Here's the story behind it, because there's always a story. I'm going to make this quick. I went into a school, no, a bookstore, and the bookstore was like, they're not going to sell my books because I write love poems. 
and they only write, well, here's the poem. She tells me they only sell books about social justice and peace and that mine are mostly about love and relationships in which they don't promote. I asked her if she thought changing the world by herself was such a good idea and how could you ever be free without someone to hold? I wonder how many revolutions started without a kiss. How free it must feel to walk through life at peace alone. There is nothing that can change the world like art. It is a universal touchstone, bringing us together across all of our society's divides. Rich or poor, gay or straight, black or white, Democrat or Republican, art is a conversation starter that forces us to confront and explore issues that we might not find another way to talk about. When we bring that art to children, it changes them for generations. When kids are encouraged to see the world through the artist's lens, the lessons they learn stay with them their entire lives, informing how they relate to other people at home and across the world and inspiring them to do better. It's why we need to stop teaching kids that STEM is the only way to go. We need to have robust funding for arts education at the earliest ages all the way through high school. Without artists, without musicians, without dancers and writers, we lose the things that make us human. We lose the ability to see one another outside of the rigid confines of science and technology. Listen, we need art. We need humanity. We need the connection it brings and the perspective it lends. The small investment it takes to fund this education pays such huge dividends. Don't our kids deserve the world art will give them? I know mine do. And I know yours do too. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bulliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word.